Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy and joining me for this episode of Take Notes is Rina Sawayama and producer Clarence Clarity to talk about how they recorded and produced the album Sawayama. Rina Sawayama is a Japanese-British singer, songwriter and model whose music fuses pop anthems with everything from R&B and club beats to new metal and early noughties teen pop. Born in Nagata, Japan, Rina moved to London at the age of five. Following her early school years, Rina was drawn to the music of turn-of-the-century artists including Britney, Christina Aguilera and Pink. Having been involved in the arts as a teenager, her first steps into music came joining hip-hop group Lazy Lion alongside Theo Ellis from the band Wolf Alice. In 2017, she self-released her debut EP, Rena, a mini-album written with producer Clarence Clarity, exploring topics of identity, sexuality and mental health. Having toured internationally and supported Charlie XCX across the UK, Rena released her debut album, Sawayama, in April 2020 on Dirty Hit Records. Working once again with producer Clarence Clarity, the album took on more aggressive soundscapes, merging her distinctive style with influences from bands such as Evanescence and Limp Bizkit, pushing pop into a new realm. Clarence Clarity is a producer, singer and songwriter currently based in Brighton. Having played with multiple bands throughout the noughties, as well as releasing music under different names, he settled on the pseudonym Clarence Clarity after making Clarity the mantra for his new solo project. He released his debut album, No Now, in 2015 on Belly Union Records. Now, with four of his own albums and having worked as a producer with Rina Sawayama on almost all of her work, Clarence has also produced remixes for artists including Charlie XCX and Christine and the Queens. Today, once again due to the Covid lockdown, I'm at home in Morden, South London and Rina and Clarence join me from their respective homes. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Excess. It is Excess by Rina Soyama from the album Soyama, and I'm very pleased to say that Rina and Clarence Clarity, the producer of the album, are connected to me remotely. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us. Oh, a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. And where are you joining me from? So I'm in South London, Southwest London. Where are you? I'm in Southwest London too. I'm in Southwest Double Digits. Southwest Double Digits. I don't say exactly, but like somewhere around near Tooting vibe. Oh, okay. I'm not too far. I'm at the end of the line, end of the Northern Line in Morden. In Morden, um, love SW19. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Clarence, Clarity, where are you? I'm in Brighton. So. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I'm by the sea. 
properly remotely because it always seems strange at the moment we're recording all our tape notes episodes remotely so people are in different places and sometimes it feels in your case Rena like I could actually wave out the window even though it's not quite like that but you're not actually very far away but yeah, yeah, Clarence, you're in Brighton, so that's good. So thanks again for joining us. So here we are to talk about a number of songs from the debut album by you, Rena. And one of the things that I'm most curious about is how you actually work together, how the songs start. What's the process? Well, I guess the beauty of it is that it's different every time. Sometimes I'll have a lyrical idea and I'll be like, hey, this is sort of what I think I want to write about today. Or I'll have like a couple of voice notes, like some acapellas that I then sort of have to like awkwardly sing. And then sort of what like Clarence likes, he'll be like, okay, cool, let's work on that. And then pretty much when we work together, like Clarence will do the production and I'll just sort of sit in the background and do some writing and melodies and lyrics and check your instagram that kind checking of thing. instagram posting tweeting yeah. i hate clarence clarity yeah. um no but yeah genuinely <laughs> generally i tend to do the melody side and the lyrics and then all the sort of production is uh clarence clarity but i'd love to know what your take is because that's sort of how it seems like on my end but you might just be like yeah she's horrible no i don't know it's kind of the same i think <laughs> It's quite nice because a lot of the time, if you're talking about, I've got this new song to work on, the challenge is like trying to decipher what that all sounds like in your head. Cause you might just be like singing me one top line idea and it's trying to yeah work out what that symphony is in your head. And we usually seem to get there. Yeah. yeah. It's weird. There is a magic to it. Definitely. I don't know. I was speaking to my dancers about it and she was just like, like choreography there's the song so you like it makes sense to do the choreography but like how the hell do you songwrite because it's literally just there's nothing and then you start from nothing and I'm sort of amazed at it every single time because you do start with nothing but yeah I guess I want to say like half the tracks on the album or maybe like a third of the tracks on the album started with nothing just with me and Clarence and then the rest was sort of with other writers or I'd do a session with someone else and then come back to us and then we'd sort of work through it and i suppose we do try and get a bit conceptual don't we especially if it's something that's already been demoed like uh i, I might listen back to something and be like well this is cool but what if it had like a new jack swing beat kind of thing or you know that yeah. kind of thing and then once you're off on one you can just start reacting to what you've already done if that makes sense like yeah, and it's really helpful to have like a producer from the beginning because then you know what should fit on the album or like we've got too many 80s sounding production on the album, let's change this to New Jack Swing and then it will give it a whole new meaning. Also, you know, you're able to sort of work through the track list together. So like, yeah, Love Me For Me was originally like a 80s sounding demo uh, that was produced by Bram in score and after that we were just like at this point in the album also Tokyo Love Hotel sort of had a similar 80s sort of synth vibe so I didn't really want to overlap in that respect so yeah it kind of worked out yeah and well you haven't sorted out where we're going to start which song we're going to start with I've got Dynasty loaded up in front of me yeah let's do Dynasty Dynasty is a fun one top of the album it makes sense doesn't it exactly Yeah. Um, And the other question was the album is so varied. There are so many different sounds going on, but so many different styles as well. So with some of the songs, Rena, 
say like if we take STFU as an example, do you have that in mind already that this is going to be a metal one, this is going to be loud and in your face and that's part of the kind of idea of the song, the concept of the song to get that message across. It's a way of emphasising those ideas through sound. Well, I'd love to like say STFU was more intentional than it was, but <laughs> it was so accidental. Like... Well, we'd already sort of discussed that we need something heavier than Dynasty on the record. Um, and I think maybe we were working on Dynasty or something like that. But um, I think Dynasty did like set a bit of context, isn't it? Because we're, we're already doing that. And it was like the Evanescence kind of vibes had already started creeping in. And I think it was maybe the night before we did STFU. It was like, could we go heavier? Do you feel like you'd want to go heavier? I've been listening to a lot of Deftones recently yeah. and you're like... Yeah, sure. But I don't think you're probably just sort of humoring me at that yeah. point. Then... But you just got to try everything, don't you? Yeah. If you were like, yeah, let's do Screamer, I'd be like, yeah, sick. Let's try it. <laughs> but in a way, Dynasty was the bridge to bring in these other more Screamo <laughs> sounds, possibly. Yeah. So, I mean, with Dynasty, we had that in the making for quite a while. Um, so we were saying like, let's do something heavier tomorrow. And then sort of by the time I'd woken up, um, Clarence was staying over at mine, actually just in this studio that you can see, just a little sofa bed there. Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I was, I mean, by the time I'd woken up, you'd already written that main riff in the intro and then sort of that breakdown in the chorus. And then, I don't know, I remember laughing at you, not not at you, but like to you and being like, while I was writing the, like the shut the fuck up bit, I was like, this is so ridiculous. I remember asking you if you thought that was all right. I think that's what makes it work, though, because if it didn't have that, it's like, we, it's not like we're about to really try and get into metal, was it? Like, no. It needs that juxtaposition, yeah, and a sense of humour. That's Yeah, that's important. I do remember laughing, but it was also perfect. So, yeah, just ran with that. Yeah, I think humour, when you're dealing with metal, I think it's really important, especially when you're not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's not our lane, and, like, I think... I almost don't want to sort of disrespect that world by it taking itself too seriously. Like it was meant to be a bizarre cocktail of things and just like a reference point. That's kind of how I see production in general, just taking these different elements from all over the place. And yeah, that's it really. Yeah. yeah. So how did Dynasty lead into that then? And how did Dynasty come about? And are we saying Dynasty? Don't know. <laughs> I'm inclined to say Dynasty, but... Yeah. Sometimes you just got to go with a certain interpretation of a word and just stick with it. Yeah. There's another song that I haven't released that has the word mise-en-scene, which I sort of, whilst looking for a rhyme, came to. But I sing it mise-en-scene because that like works with the rhyme. I've just like... Right. I don't speak French, so... Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, Dynasty, I guess... I don't even remember. Clarence, do you remember how it came about? <sighs> I feel like I sort of it on the toilet. <laughs> I think you had the chorus melody line and not that much else like vocally but I remember you specifically wanting that like tremolo guitar part yes was um am I imagining this was it yeah yeah, yeah that we had as uh, yeah. a reference um what's the song called um, maps. maps yeah just that chimey little tremolo guitar part and then it all sort of starts building on top of that and the tension around that yeah, this thing. I feel like the original demo, that was the only sort of bit at the beginning, right? Like, we didn't have those organs and didn't those, like, little spaceship sounds. Well, this is work in progress one playing here. 
And you mentioned maps by Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. That's the reference in this little sound that you've got going on there. Yeah. How did you create that? You were just furiously shredding, no? At the guitar to That's just do your, that. um, your guitar that's probably hanging up behind you there, isn't it, I think? Just, um, yeah, real basic stuff straight into the computer. Totally virtual amp simulators. Yeah. Load of delay. Bish bash bosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how are you recording those vocals on this work in progress then? I have a Sontronics uh, Saturn mic that I use to demo and sometimes do final vocals as well. Um, it's just I'm not very good at vocal production, so I don't like, like right now in quarantine, I'm trying to teach myself. Actually, Clarence has been teaching me on Zoom. But yeah, that's sort of what we record most demos on. And I think with this one, we might have re-recorded all the vocals in LA. Think, yeah, we redid it. Which was on a U99, which belonged to the studio. Yeah. Um, I, you generally do have scratch vocals and then redo at a later date. Just yeah. to clean it up and just really work on each line. But just hearing those vocals there now, I mean, they're already layered up, aren't they? I've yeah, I seem to it. remember I, the um, vocoded, like, vocal synth parts in that that you can hear. Um, I probably got that soloed somewhere. But I think we're making more of that back at the start. And there's this layer on top of that. That did make it to the final one, but it's a bit more subtle. Saving myself is all I've really known. Seen it been done before. Very subtly in the background. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but already there's so many different elements in there. It's already sounding pretty big, you know, for a kind of demo. Yeah, I mean, Clarence did most of the drums. I mean, all of the drums programmed through samples i'm guessing and uh, it was right at the last minute really like the last month of something that we re-recorded it um when we started the record i was independent so i was financing like everything like writing trips to la and so we were keeping costs really to a minimum but then when dirty hit came on board and we had budget uh we were able to play with some drums and live instruments which is something that i really couldn't afford before which i re i mean i before i was like oh it won't make a difference but actually after doing it i was like it really does make a difference and i think for the first track of the album i really wanted it to sound huge when those like the big snares and um but yeah i mean the demo was as big as we can make it inside of just a laptop which I is what Clarence it was always like right from the start meant to be big wasn't it like an epic and I think straight away or very soon after its inception it was like yeah this needs to start the album I think we always had it in our heads that this needs to be epic right away yeah. so we set the bar real high which is yeah it's just like 
you think it's so easy to make an epic sound but sometimes within sessions like the more you put on it the less you hear because yeah. there's just so many of each thing or and then it sort of becomes quite a bit of a nightmare to mix and it's just yeah this got too busy i mean yeah. shall i play like some sort of examples of where it was and then with like the live drums and all that kind of that thing. would be great yeah so this is where we're at before the live drums it was a lot more like sample based and yeah So on those bits that we're hearing, can we assume that the majority of that is all Clarence Clarity shredding on guitar, creating those drum beats, kind of doing everything in effect? Um, yeah, it's pretty much all Clarence Clarity. Until, but it, it, but yeah. it's interesting, the ambition that is clearly there. I mean, from recording in a quite simple setup, but thinking that you wanted it to sound really, really big, but also the idea that you were paying for writing trips to LA yourself before Dirty Hit got involved. So, you know, you're committing money and time to realising your potential, but also your your vision for these songs and the sound that you're trying to create. So that's a, a big commitment. It's really saying, I'm determined to get this to sound the way I think it should sound in order for me to reach the people I want to reach with this music. Oh, for um, sure. And presumably Dirty Hit could see that she means it. No, she's so, so oh, committed. Oh, I hope so, yeah. Well, well, I would think so. I mean, it, she's already paid for herself to go to LA to meet people and do stuff. Because a lot of, yeah, you know, a lot of people are quite content doing it all in your room in Tooting or, no, and just leaving it at that. Well, the fun fact is that this used to be my bedroom and we recorded the entire EP in this room on like the hottest month. And I remember just we had to like close the windows to record and we would just be like sweltering. And it was the Sontronics mic that we used and that was the EP. Yeah. And sort of that, I mean, established the audience and we were lucky with like how well that went. For me, it was very, it seemed like the right thing to do. And so Clarence came on tour with me throughout 2018 and I was working like a maniac so that I can earn enough money to do the recording sessions because doing it out of this room again second time round was just not an option I did not want to do that again I didn't want to put Clarence through that again that was not fun it was stressful and also like work-life separation like this is where I live as well so yeah I was like right I need to get like a nice studio and we worked out of heavy duty in Burbank which was an awesome studio um but yeah I used to like fly out of like, so I'd come off stage, um, then run to the airport in Newark and then get on a flight to do a commercial job in the UK, then meet everyone back in Boston two days later. So like literally do the shoot, come back to Boston, do a gig the next day. Then after the LA show, which was three days later, I'd then hop on a plane right after the LA show to then go to New York to do another shoot and then get back to LA. So I was like... In hindsight, I don't know how I did it physically, but I was like, the goal of the album is so much bigger for me. And so, yeah, it made sense to work. And I don't know, I, I sort of read this really useful little tip um, that said, basically, like, don't burden your creativity with, like, immediately 
with the responsibility of earning money. Like your creativity should not have the burden of having to earn your earn a living for yourself. So yeah, I worked as hard as possible so I could do whatever I wanted. I think if I really relied on my creativity to like pay for everything, then I would have signed a deal way earlier. But I'm glad I didn't because when we were sort of showing this record round, it was really easy to spot who was really into it and who wasn't. You know, the labels loved some tracks and then they didn't really like the ones that we were most passionate about. So yeah, long story short, it's just a big old hustle. But yeah, we were very serious. Yeah, amazing. I think having it all together by ourselves as well sort of weeded out the labels that had ulterior motives of how they wanted to promote it and shape it into something we didn't want it to be and all that kind of thing. So yeah, it was better that way. Like the LA thing as well wasn't, it felt kind of obvious to go and do that because, well, we both needed to get out of the bedroom recording setup and we'd already sort of started forming relationships in LA for one reason or another and like the touring and things like that. So yeah, that just kind of made sense, didn't it? Like just to be able to frame the album as like a create a bit more ceremony around it. Like we're going to this place to work on the record rather than it just being chipped away at like in Rena's bedroom, then me bringing hum- things home to my bedroom and it never really feeling like a real thing. So yeah, it puts yeah. some sort of framing around it. And so when Rena has to go off and promote it and talk about it and be excited about it for the next forever, it's, um, you can think back to that actual event rather than, you're looking back and be like, when did we even make this record? Because <laughs> like, I've kind of felt that in the past of things I've been working on. And so it's good for that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it created really great memories. And like, if you're a pop artist, you need to go to LA. Like that's where the industry is. I mean, London and Stockholm are also great, but LA is where it's at. And also we were able to invite people down to the studio and then sort of they would create a little bit of a buzz. And it's sort of all about that, I think, in the songwriting community and also production as well. Just they want to know like right now what you're doing. And things move so quickly in LA. So yeah, that, I mean, I would definitely say save up and go to LA and you'll, if you're social and willing to sort of collaborate, I think you'll get a lot done. Yeah, very interesting. So, I mean, having got some of these work in progress dynasty versions, how did you then realise them further when you started recording things in LA? I mean, having achieved so much quickly yourselves, I mean, I know that you've got all these different musicians to turn to potentially to record parts, but you also, you know, have constraints on budget, but also in terms of who you know, and also you you probably want to do a lot yourself anyway, because that's what you're used to. Yeah, I think that's sort of where me and like Clarence butted heads a little bit is that like doesn't need live drums and like doesn't need these additional things when it, it sounds already so good. Part of it was that like bringing a new label on board like when the album feels like it's about 80% completion. I think in terms of just the morale of the people who are coming on board to make it feel like it's their project as well when they're coming on quite late, things like that can really... Yeah, I think that was a really good way for us to already have all the creative decisions done and then sort of test out the things that would then maybe excite the label even more, maybe motivate them more because I realised that sort of yeah like having done this independently like it's so much about the morale and sort of the excitement of the individual people working on the project for it to go far if they're really not feeling it if they don't feel like they were part of the creation and um, whether it's the A&R or you know whether it's like even the founder I think that was sort of an important point to sort of bring other people in and let sort of other people experiment on the track and I'm glad it turned out really well but yeah we 
definitely had people who were interested in doing the drums in LA, but I'm glad we waited till we were back in London, I think. Yeah. So how did you go about this then, Clarence? How did you get this music reworked or re-recorded, re-performed? Well, I just like, I mean, there's only like two songs that ended up getting live drums and I've basically just handed that off to the label to sort out. I mean, Rena's probably better at explaining this because I tend to be like, I'll take things to a total sort of completion in how it sounds in my head. And I'm also like super laid back about, well, if someone else wants to take this in a different direction, go for it. But this is kind of how I think it should sound. So yeah, that's it really. Yeah, I think with like, so it's we're talking about like, um, who's going to save you now and Dynasty and um, yeah, with Dynasty. So it was sort of passed on to John Gilmore who does a lot of 1975's uh, engineering and production. I think he's been working with them for like the last two albums. And honestly, like I'm really like, other than Clarence, like I don't really know that many producers anyway. So it was pretty great that they were like, yeah, this person knows exactly how to like do live instruments because it's just for the listeners, like it's so hard to record drums and make it sound good and worthwhile because there's such good samples as you can hear in the demo out there now so uh you gotta really like make it count make every penny count yeah um but they uh had freddie what's his surname he drums for um uh lewis capaldi basically right. and if someone had told me that i would have been like why would that work for the track like that makes no sense it's not like some laid back like chill ballad but they were like trust me he's great and i think actually gilmore and freddie lived together so that's why it sort of worked out and yeah we sort of blitzed all the drums in one day and it was amazing i'd never like experienced anything like it really but and i'd never really worked with an engineer either so yeah it was cool i had to like sort of step up are you able to contrast the drums that you had recorded and then these new drums yeah yeah that's what i was going to do because that makes a bit more sense a b it they Um, say (laughs) it's a b it right so this is how it was We had all like the open hi-hats going here, which weren't there originally, it was a bit more sort of glitched out, like this is how it was. This is after. So all those fills we've just heard, they're all at the re-recordings or the re-performing. Oh there's a bit of both, isn't there? Because right. there is... Bit of both. So obviously the Freddie had the reference track, but I think he just got so excited and started doing loads of fills, which I was really excited yeah, about. Yeah, there's some yeah. separate, like, overdubbed new fills, like this kind of thing. So that was, like, a new element, but then that's, like, blended with... Do 
you think Freddie was getting excited because he wasn't playing on the Lewis Capaldi track that um, was... <laughs> I don't want to throw shade on Lewis. <laughs> I'm not going to throw shade on Lewis, but no. he was very excited. Uh, just he was a, at a different excited. tempo, that's all. <laughs> exactly. A whole new BPM. <laughs> no, he was really, really excited. We've actually got a behind the scenes of recording the whole album and I've filmed that whole day as well. So we've got that coming on my YouTube channel. But he was like, who requests metal, pop new metal no one yeah and he was just really really excited so yeah and clarence were you there in la yeah yeah no we we did oh god yeah we drove ourselves mad to the point where we couldn't really talk to each other for months afterwards cause we, like, yeah we li- yeah. lived together which is natural uh, spread out over like six months but there was like two months that we were just living with each other working with each other every day and that got intense i think we've made friends yeah. again now but yeah yeah we're friends now but we lived with each other I think out of 30 days, we went to Studio 28 days or something. It was so intense, but we worked hard. It, mm. We worked really hard. And who was inside with you then, um, apart from you two? Just us two. <laughs> Just you two. Wow. Just us two. I'm trying to think, did intense. anyone even come and go at any point, other than like a little playback session we did for some friends? That we had a little playback session with my friends, and they were savage, which was really good. But uh, other than that, yeah, just us two, which is... I don't know if it comes recommended, but... <laughs> it, it does make you think, well, so you've gone to heavy duty NLA to work on these songs, but ultimately it's still just the two of you. So apart from the change of location, nothing much else has, has changed at that point. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it does seem like that. It's headspace, I think, more than anything. Yeah. And also just little things like having a studio that's treated in terms of like sound and having like a sub to be monitoring through and things like that for the base end, which we didn't have in our bedroom setups. Like being able to turn it up really loud 24 hours a day as well, not being upset about pissing the neighbors off, upsetting the neighbors or yeah, having drilling going on from next door and all that kind of thing. Yeah, It's just like way more focused and way more laid back to be able to work like that. Um, and also like just being in that studio and having other musicians around as well like so it just felt a bit more like a creative hub and yeah we had like bj burton next door we had ariel down the corridor they're behind coming in claro just popped in and she was just doing a session next door so it was yeah it sort of adds that good like positive peer pressure yeah and up in your game like knowing that people can hear a little bit coming through the walls and being like yeah this is exactly got, just yeah. turn it up a little bit louder maybe they want yeah. a feature on it no they we didn't. weren't thinking about that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And of course, you re-recorded these vocals as well. So you kind of upped your game that way, too. So you changed the microphone, were able to sing as loud as you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because having a, a vocal booth, like, really treated and, like, super glossy microphone is what we wanted. Like, have a real pop sheen on everything. So, yeah, that, that was important. Are we able to hear that difference between um... the vocals that you recorded originally? Kind of. I can't isolate the demo vocals. and I, Maybe to the untrained ear, this isn't going to be that extreme. <laughs> right. But to this, me, it's like night and day. This will be Serena's home mic on the demo. I'm losing myself in the darkness of the world. And then this is flipping in the final version. To me, it's like night and day. I think you can kind of hear that. I hope so. I think you can hear that. Yeah. <laughs> it's brighter, so that. So 
Yeah. So, yeah, yeah a... that's a big difference, I think. Good. Fantastic. And there's some pretty amazing guitar soloing going on on Dynasty as well. Hell yeah. So where, <laughs> where did that come from and whose idea was that? Actually, this is quite an interesting little story because I was going back through earlier versions and we didn't actually have that part at all, did we? And yeah, we just came out of the bridge just into like a breakdown originally. So the idea was to have like a super intimate bit before the final chorus kicked in. Now that wasn't enough drama for Rena, so Hell no. we went back and and had a look at a guitar solo, which is kind of a combination of both of us. Like I started off and sort of maybe shredded out the first half of it, and then Rena started singing back. Um, some ideas of where it should go and getting more dramatic and like this big climax and so I was sort of sat there trying to work out what she was singing and like and then the singing on top of that I think it was kind of an accident actually wasn't it originally because you were singing to me how you thought the solo should go the sort of the second half of it yeah so I had that recorded while I was trying to work it out and then we're like yeah this sounds sick actually and then I think you were thinking of that Beyonce reference and all that kind of thing and it all just it all kind of came together like that yeah, it was I Care by Beyonce. I mean, I'm just, I've been obsessed with Beyonce my whole life, but that song where she sings with the guitar always was like always in the back of my mind. I don't usually sing guitar solos, but this one I was like, yeah, I think I know what I want it to sound like. And then that Christina Aguilera. <laughs> There's a blend of Beyonce and Christina Aguilera going on, I feel like. But that was a vocal challenge. That was not easy. It's great though, I love that combination. Amazing, so that was all recorded in LA. Um, at Heavy Duty. Yeah. Yes, I think the guitars then were actually re-recorded because Gilmore worked so closely with 1975. He sort of showed Adam Hahn from 1975 the song and he was just like, yeah, I definitely want to record. Uh, he loved it. So he was just like, I'll record it. And so it was quite useful because he had access to all these amps that he then actually like physically recorded. So it was like a different sort of texture. And again, like recording live instruments, I guess. Because I guess you were going, were you going through guitar or like were you going through some sort of um, in the demo? Yeah. I mean, in LA, that was just, yeah, like a virtual amp type thing. Yeah. Um, so the finished guitar solo then is Adam Hand from the 1975. Yeah. Right. It's which is super cool. So he's like your guest guitar solo star on that track. Exactly. You know, like Brian May stepping into the room. Exactly. And we'd never met at that point. We'd never spoken to each other. Wow. But he was just such a fan of the song that, um, yeah. So, I mean, Gilmore recorded, I think, three left and rights, like separately. So we had like three different mics, the three different amps. So, yeah, it really gives it that sort of body that you need. Um, it's sort of like that admin at the end of the production process which 
is pretty boring. It's not really like super creative, but I feel like that's the 10%. It really is like the icing that you don't want to skip on. You don't want to just hit send on the track. You want to make sure that it's like the best it can be. And for that song, it's so, yeah, like you said, it's so ambitious that it's sort of, I'm really glad that it had like those live instruments at the end. It was really like just so stitched together at the end. Um, and like Clarence is saying, um, you know, in the session, it's like how many tracks was it at the towards the end? Well, I mean, right, this is before like recording, you know, live drums and that. There's like ninety. Ninety tracks. Yeah. So And like a live drums are probably like, I don't know, ten at least. Yeah extra and then the percussion and then the re-recorded guitar parts yeah it was insane by the end yeah it was like 150 maybe tracks in the session which for most computers it'll just cause it to melt down which i think at some point that was majority of the frustration of us working on this song was that like just the computer couldn't take it anymore <laughs> we just couldn't edit yeah. it without it crashing so yeah, so we could sort of forced to give up on it. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very ambitious first track and I, I'm really happy with how it sounds. And mixing it was really hard. Um, Spike Stent mixed it, who is incredible. Right. But yeah, it was just sort of trying to get those uh, mix notes done was, yeah, pretty tricky. So um, going back to the recording of the vocals as well, which does relate to singing the guitar solo too, and how do you capture that recording? You know, is there processing on the voice as it sings or afterwards to get that kind of sound that you achieved there? Well, I mean, Clarence can talk more on this, but I generally don't like to hear my voice tuned when I record. Mm. And I guess recently I've tried to focus most on diction. Um, and keeping it very clean, like the things that can't be changed in post. So tuning can be really easily changed in post, but emotion and diction is some, also this song is so wordy that like, yeah, it needed to be almost, you know, musical theater levels of diction. Otherwise it just won't cut through and it just sounds like a soup of vocals. So yeah, but processing wise, I mean, that's, that's a you conversation, Clarence. Yeah. I mean, like Rena in general does not use well, we don't use that much auto-tune unless it's like for deliberate effect. I mean, it's so kind of trendy to do that just as an aesthetic musical choice, but it's never really been part of our palette for this. I've always felt it's important that Rena's personality and the nuance of everything cuts through. And um, so you can hear how the, the guitar solo vocal thing comes together. Rena, stop me if you don't want to be laid this bare. Go on, <laughs> um, do it. Um, so that's just totally dry out of the vocal booth and then we'll like put another layer on top of that which kind of just smooths it out a little bit and then you know that's just got a bunch of like echoes and delays and things on top of it And that really comes together when it's just married with the guitar solo. They kind of do a nice little dance together, you know. That sounded great. I mean, it's a really interesting point that you make, Rena, about 
how you're going to sing and thinking about how you're going to sing and being very aware of what you're trying to achieve. But obviously, you know, it's a big, big picture that you're thinking about. Yeah, I mean, so like in 2018, I think I started training with this amazing person called Maria Rivington, who's based in Southeast. And uh, I found her because I looked up what Gaga does with her vocals and how her vocals have I, I think it was um, watching her do the Sound of Music cover. And I was like, look, no one sings like Gaga. Everyone thinks singing like that is lame. It's a little bit musical theatre. It's a little bit operatic. It's quite thick, which is not... I feel like modern microphones are just sort of designed to pick up like the hiss of a breath and the most trebly voices cut through. I mean, you look at Billie Eilish's vocals, you look at Halsey's vocals and all the, all the things that really do cut through. But I was like, that's like not me. It's like everything like this. It's, like, it's just... Yeah, I'm a bag. <laughs> yeah, I love Billy. I love all those singers. I'm not dissing them. But like, that's sort of the trendy vocal right now is to make it, make your voice sound very baby and very top end and boost that and have the mics to do that as well. But I don't know. I was like, I want to sound like Gaga when I'm older. I want that sort of range. I want that depth. I want that emotion. And also with when you have that power, you can use that power. You can choose not to use it as well, which I like in Bad Friend, for example, I think I really pull back. Um, but yeah, so I started training with her and I would do weekly lessons. And yeah, my vocals have really, so it's all just the confidence really to be able to sing up there and also quite um, dramatically as well. I think you spend so long working on the lyrics that a lot of people don't end up hearing or don't end up feeling because you're not sort of giving it the emotion that it needs but yeah I take that side maybe too seriously but I sort of enjoy it and I don't think I could have sang you know who's going to save you now without that training for sure that was like in a mid-range sort of like the sort of break in my vocals before that I wouldn't have even attempted and actually if you watch Dynasty being performed my voice is just not cute but like uh, I've really worked on it and hopefully it'll sound better when I tour like the end of this year or next year. Yeah. I don't know when it's going to happen, yeah. but yeah, when I tour this record. When you're allowed to be out there again, um, as as we all are. Also, um, I want to add that we recorded a choir for this as well. Yeah. So we had one day with a choir and they were incredible. They... It's sort of you can hear it slightly in the background before like I did all my backing vocals but when the voice texture is all the same it doesn't sort of spread it far and wide enough so yeah uh, they sort of I think they do a lot of the middle eight and all the the main line of dynasty they do all of that um, so I think there's five people six people singing um, it's very subtle but I still think it really adds a bit of um, sort of that sort of church vibe hmm. but um they were a gospel choir, but I was like, can you do it more musical theatre? <laughs> Which, I don't know, they did it so well, but I felt like I was just like being rude by being like, can you just make it like a little bit more like dumbed down, less cool, maybe. Um, but they were incredible. So yeah, you can sort of hear that in the background. Excellent. And where were they recorded in LA or in London? Or no, So that was in London. Um, yeah, we've got a studio in Wandsworth and I think it was about five or six of the... London Community Gospel Choir and yeah we did about three songs in one day which was really intense we had them for about four or five hours and we managed to get them all in so yeah fantastic well I think we're gonna 
Maybe we'll try and hear a bit of that section from the master and then we'll move on to our next song. But uh, I think we can hear the sounds of the London Community Gospel Choir and Rena working together right now. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So from Dynasty to Love Me For Me, which is the next song we're going to look at. Um, now, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but with Dynasty, it's just the two of you that are involved in writing that song. But I think Love Me For Me, you've involved some other people. Is that right? Yeah, so the song started off uh, with a writing session in LA with Bram Inscore and Nicole Morier. Nicole's written for Britney and stuff, and Bram's done a lot for um, Troy Sivan. And yeah, so we, it was actually our first writing session together. Uh, it was one of my first few writing sessions in LA, maybe like even the first that I ever did in LA. So I was really nervous. But yeah, so we produced a demo 
Bram and Nicole are the same team who actually did Comme des Garçons and their final production is Comme des Garçons, basically. But with this one, when we came to looking at it from an album perspective, we found that the original demo style didn't really work. I don't want to call it a demo because it was really quite built up at that point. But I think it's interesting to show like even when a track is finished, it still might not sound right on the record so you might have to tear it down and start again and I remember having that awkward conversation with Clarence about it being like um I'm not feeling this track but I think a lot of people were like yeah I think Love Me For Me needs to be on the album but for me it just didn't fit it sounded too much like another song production wise and the same sort of era and I was being quite um picky but I think the end result is cool but yeah it'd be interesting to hear the original demo because I haven't heard it in such a long time yeah so I mean, I've just got some more questions though about this writing session idea I mean how do you go about yeah. contacting these people when you just ring them up and say hi I'm Rina <laughs> and um, I've got some great ideas and we should really work together or you know what how oh, do you God. go about it I'm terrible at reaching out to people. I'm terrible at getting back to people. So luckily I have a great manager. We actually share the same manager called Will Frost from House of Us. Yeah, so basically we got connected through someone we know. Often it's not as glamorous. Look, the way me and Clarence Clarity met was through management too. Like I think it was your publisher then and Will at the time were in touch and then they were like, we should try out this session. And usually it's like that. And usually it's quite awkward and the first session is awkward because it's like a sort of blind date really or sort of locked in a room together. And they're like, here you go, write a song. It is quite typical of us as personalities aren't we? like we can be quite introverted and I think I'm sure a lot of people do constantly reach out for people and are like collabing on stuff all the time but we kind of sit back and I don't know not yeah, we're assholes, really. yeah we don't, pretty much we should reach out more yeah poor Will even our relationship was quite reluctant at the start wasn't it but then it was like yeah yeah the music's too good to not do it so we just had to you know live with each other <laughs> yeah literally and here we are three years later <laughs> but I remember yeah the first session is always awkward and I think that's sort of so much about being a songwriter and a producer is getting better at that that first encounter and making people feel like comfortable enough to sit in a room with you for eight hours or whatever mm. sometimes it can be awful but often you know working with producers and they're so very encouraging they're sort of up for just playing you know playing around and just doing whatever and I think that's the unspoken side of creating music that is so key to getting ahead I think but yeah so this was the first session with Bram and Nicole and I think I was feeling not confident as usual and I was like I don't really know what I want to write about um I think that's sort of how it started. I don't know. It was it was not a session that I was like, yeah, this is like crazy, like so good. You're Which always sort of quite self-conscious about the lyrical side on this one. Like, yes, and, uh, it didn't feel like maybe it had the same sort of strength of message that some of the other songs had. And yeah, myself it was, included in it, and everyone else was just like, I get it, Rena, but like, this is such a banger. Like, it's, you know the hooks are so strong and that like we've got to find a way to make it work yeah it was um it was nearly not on the album because I just didn't believe in it which is I know it's ridiculous and I think it's a lot of people's favorite songs on the record but I don't know I I often you just got to trust other people and that was a moment where I was like, I need to I'm going to trust you guys on this because I don't think it should go on the album but um like I put too much 
emphasis on lyrics sometimes that it has to be personal it has to speak a truth um and it can't be too generic which i felt like this was but it's okay i mean generic means that more people really can relate to it and mm. you know some of the best pop songs are sort of generic or sort of um, more understandable lyrics but yeah. um yeah so when you went in with bram and nicole what did you bring to them uh i don't really know <laughs> i don't think i brought in an idea again i was just so new to writing with other people and i think i kept talking about that which is not a great thing to do really just to show how green you are um but yeah i was genuinely very nervous and i didn't really know what to expect from writing with other people first time in la i'm really scared of everyone i'd really only written with clarence for like the longest time so we just sort of get used to each other's way of working not i mean everyone's lovely you know the people who i worked with in la were all lovely but yeah i think it's just that's the scary bit of a songwriter isn't it it's just feeling sort of feeling like you're good enough to go into a session was like one of my main obstacles and it still is to be honest i'm still sort of freaking out with every session i go to i'm like oh i'm not worthy but yeah so i don't think i brought anything I think I just brought insecurities and bad vibes, probably, but it got turned around into a good song, so that's good. <laughs> but ma- no, maybe in a way that fed into the song somehow. No, because there's a little insecurity there with "Love Me for Me," isn't there? You no, know, kind of revealing insecurity in a way that's part of the meaning of the song. And it's interesting that you went in with nothing, but you came out with something, something strong enough that other people around you were saying, "No, we need to pursue this. It is really good," even though you were questioning it. Yeah, that's why you should have people you trust in your team Hmm. because sometimes you get so in your head about things and you get too self-aware, self-conscious about this doesn't feel like me. But it's not, I mean, it's about the music at the end of the day. It's about a good song. And if it's a good song to the people around you, then it's going to be a good song. So I think I annoy people by going back and forth about whether I'm going to have it on the record. And I'm really glad it did end up on the record. And I didn't, sometimes you just need people in your team that you trust. But then at the same time, no, you're the artist. So, you know, you need to have these worries. You're the one who needs to worry about these things to a certain extent, aren't you? You know, you need to go through that, that agony um, that, that artists yeah. put themselves through, you know, to, to create what you're doing. Um, but you did come out of this with something with Bram and Nicole, and you, we're going to hear it, I think. So this is the demo that you then discuss with Clarity to, to decide to change. World exclusive. Every day I want to start over. Cause I remind me of me. I'm always stalling my mirror. Tell me lies. Saying I. I gotta do right, be nice, smile just like a lady. So, do Bram and Nicole have particular instruments that they work with? No, so with Nicole, uh, it's always just been me and Nicole do the lyrics and the melody, and then uh, Bram will do the ho- whole instrumental. Right. So as you say, I mean, this is pretty produced up, isn't it? You know, it's um, sounding yeah. very realised. And this is—I don't know why they still want to work with me because, like, 
I was like, hey, love what you did, but we're going to change it. Which <laughs> I think is really speaks to producers because you've put so much time and effort into it and then it might get changed. And it's not, I'm not saying this is bad at all. I think this is great, but it's just for me, it didn't fit. The production didn't fit on the record. And yeah, and I'm sort of, I'm really glad that we went the route that we did, but I feel really bad when I have to change people's production. But sometimes yeah. you just, I always think about the song, like it's about the song. Like how does the song going to sound big and anthemic at the end of the day? And that's sort of what leads me to, make these decisions <laughs> yeah yeah totally but at the same time it seems to me you know that such trained professionals such as bram and nicole would completely understand that process that it's going to change it's going to be reassessed and um but they still were involved in writing the song so the song as you say you know serving the song um is their work as well so you take it to clarence clarity and you then start expressing your doubts and what does Clarence Clarity do to assuage those those doubts and say, no, actually, there's something there. We need to work on it. So what, what did you do, Clarence? I think the first thing I was thinking about was this new Jack Swing rhythm. I think we'd, on the Rena EP mini album beforehand, done some, I don't know, Actually, have we ever touched on 80s stuff? Maybe it was just because it, the 80s vibe, which we felt like the demo had, just was never really part of the Rena sort of palette of sound. But um, yeah, it just didn't quite feel like Rena canon, like at this point. So just fast forward in it five, 10 years into like early 90s territory, just like we'd already been doing the kind of Britney, NSYNC, 90s throwback. And this just about felt like it had potential to be moved into that world a bit more. So yeah, I mean, I, I loved it already as it was. It's just making sure that it exists in the same world or feels right. So that was the first thing. Um, so yeah, you got those drums of like swinging rather than sort of straight drums. And got a little vinyl scratch in there. And the little uh, sort of whistling synth on the top is quite you know, characteristic of that era, like this stuff. It's like the G-Funk thing that then got like eaten up by all of the 90s pop, like Spice Girls and stuff like that. went in on that MIDI program in there. So did you completely rebuild the track, Clarence? Yeah, usually um, in this there, there was like maybe a couple of elements that made it from the sort of demo, but it varies quite a lot what I actually start with, especially like when me and Rena first started getting like working together, it would just be like, I'd hear like a demo MP3 or something and just craft everything sort of on top of that as just a reference. And then as we've gone along, like, so with this one, I think I did have some component parts of it, but by the end, there's not much that got left over, I don't think. But yeah, it varies. I don't like to get rid of everything for the sake of it. Like if I think something sounds cool and it works and I'd rather just leave it, and it's just to sort of sometimes just to have the control so I can it fits inside of what I understand of production and 
my head's a bit more in it when you've got like a session that someone passes over and you've got 50 things from another producer you're like trying to dissect like what were they going for with these combinations of sounds and it's not always clear in that so it can just be quicker to just re-record stuff even if you are kind of mimicking the same sort of vibes it yeah just for your own sanity and having your head around a project but this was mainly all original by the end mm. so are you able to build it up then yeah, so from the original sort of straight sort of 80s or more 80s inspired drums like this. I've then come in and put this swing on it. Redone all these bits. What have we got here? So got this wonky tambourine going on and sort of wide hi-hat things. Probably just would have been building that up maybe just over like a, a, a the demo version or whatever just as like an mp3 or something just while i was sort of working out the arrangement of things and it's quite a good way of sort of cheating sometimes to have like the demo version there because you constantly got this reference of like i'm gonna make this sound better or whatever even though it's so subjective but like having that marker there that the original person never had it's yeah it's quite a useful way of working sometimes um yeah, then I would have redone this bass, which is like a synth bass. Squelchy thing, just like nicked from all that like early 90s stuff. Got some pads here. DX7 sounds. Uh, then it's got a slightly kind of ravey piano thing again just all in that era that's almost intentionally sort of wrong swing that doesn't quite feel right when it's by itself but then when it's mixed back into the groove it's you know oh, i've got some orchestra hits here obligatory orchestra hits little whining G-Funk thing I was talking about earlier. Oh yeah, then this hook. Yeah. Yeah, that ended up being quite important, didn't it, actually, this thing. I think that was one thing that, Rena, you were a bit concerned with, with the original, is having like a real distinct like instrumental hook bit. But, um, yeah, it wasn't really there. And I think we worked on this for a little bit and then that ended up going back into the intro that sort of, I'm quite into like having these little musical motifs that will pop in and out of something. So it's introduced right from the off. And this super sort of reverbed out echoey thing. And then you might forget about it and then it's, you know, comes back at the end of the chorus, so. But you've already set it up, you've already planted those seeds. Yeah, I think stuff, like, right? I don't know, I've watched a songwriting documentary like years ago. Either the Bee Gees or ABBA. <laughs> I don't remember. But they said like every song needs 10 hooks and I really believe in it. Like it's not just the vocal hooks, it needs instrumental hooks. And I think that's 
so important for it to be like maximum earworm. I feel like in every song there has to be some sort of hook in the instrumental as well as the vocals that's separate but distinct in its own way but also fits in and complements it and it should feel like a familiar friend when it comes back in like later on in the track so yeah it like sort of appears in the intro and then keeps popping back in in the second verse to like sort of help it but yeah I think it's super important to have that yeah that's really interesting and the 10 hooks thing do you tick them off as you work through a song do you think right I have a mental we need two more yeah (laughs) (laughs) I have a mental note yeah I'm like there always needs to be an instrumental hook I think that is like one thing that I'm like it it needs to be something there's not many of your songs that have like melodic space they're always very like packed in yeah I think we've both got that like sensibility as well just like just an assault of melodic information and parts going on all the time yeah Um, it's all about balancing that I think and making sure that each bit enhances the other rather than sort of makes it a bit confusing because I think we both love taking it to a bit of a confusing key or like especially I like to like put some weird flat notes in there just to like mess with it but sometimes it doesn't help the song so you just gotta be really quite clear with like what that's going to serve and all these changes all this uh, rewriting in effect how did that affect the melody line of the song and what you had come up with in LA yeah did it change that much I feel like it didn't I think the middle eight was the bit that changed the most yeah the original hook pretty much stayed the same through the whole process I think we re-recorded the vocals at one point but yeah there was well there's an evolution of the the bridge where originally it was a vocal section this survived quite a few different versions that ended up getting taken out completely and at one point it had a sax solo yes but then another song had a sax solo so we were like we can't do Um, which then turned into a guitar solo. But yeah, because I think it was more to do with like, that was back to back on the track list in by the end with Paradise in another song that had a big sax solo and it just felt like, can't overdo that, not if they're back to back on the album. So re-recorded the sax as a guitar part, which was kind of weird, but... And then that just extended across where the old bridge used to be. I think my main problem with that middle eight was that that syncopated just didn't work with that new beat anymore. Yeah. We took elements of it. And that's actually, I just remember, that's probably one of the big reasons why I wasn't sure about having that track in the album because that middle eight was when the lyrics flipped. Because it sounds like... I'm talking about loving other people or something. But then in the lyrics in the middle eight, it's like, I think it's like, I know I got what you want, what you want, but you keep on running from love because you wanted more than I've got. This is a message from me, from you in the mirror I see. Now I can finally breathe. So it's like that line about the mirror to me was so important because that's when the lyrics flipped and then that didn't end up being in the final. So I was like, the lyrics are confusing. It doesn't resolve. But really, like, no one cares, really. Like... (laughs) I always think people care about these little things. No one cares. So, yeah, the middle eight had a whole lyrical section that got 
taken out. I feel like loads of people listening to this going to be like, why the hell did you do that? That's so crazy. <laughs> like, why is you such a bloody tinkerer? You're just tinkering away and shaving all the good bits. But I think it's a great song in the end. So <laughs> I think it's okay. But That's pretty crucial that you like it, isn't it? Because there was a point where you were thinking, no, it's not going on. It's not for me. It's not saying what I want to say. Yeah, you got to relinquish control sometimes. It's a funny example as well that happens in a lot of these songs where it's like, well, what should we do instead? And it's like, oh, guitar solo. <laughs> Every <laughs> time. Is it a key change or is it yeah, a guitar solo? Yeah, it's one of two things. Either of those yeah, two yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah. We had to go and take out key changes in some songs because we did it too much. Um, and we had to, like this one, we had to change the sax solo to a guitar solo because we were like, it's back to back. We can't, we like, we just, it sounds like we're running out of ideas here. So we just need to like, chill yeah chill on the solos but at the same time in that particular guitar solo could also you know it's not so clearly that it's guitar maybe it is to some people but to me when i was listening to it as part of the album you know i noted the solo but it i was kind of thinking what is that is that a guitar or is it a synth is it you know a keyboard playing something that sounds kind of like it could be a guitar i think like from a musical perspective it's a bit weird because it was that sax solo to start with the way someone's going to play a sax, like, I mean, this is from a, like a sample library or something, the original sax solo. And then I sort of chopped it up into bits and rearranged it to work how I wanted it, like picked the phrasing. But the way someone's going to play a sax is not how you really play a guitar. So if I just wrote it as a guitar part to start with, it probably never would have sounded like this, if that makes sense. It's mm. Yeah, like little runs like that, not very like guitar-y, so it sounds weird. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the sound, it's just like stacked layers and like different harmonies and stuff like that. But yeah, it's all guitar. Yeah, sounds great. I mean, it, it makes it sound different, which is great because, you know, it's just a different, different sound, different feel. Um, I think it's kind of about context as well, because uh, typically you probably wouldn't have a wailing guitar solo around that kind of production. And that's something that we like playing with all the time, just like dragging these completely wrong elements and yeah. So from Love Me For Me, shall we move on to Snakeskin? Yeah, the final song in the record. Now, um, it's a 13 track album. Um, there's all sorts of styles as we've discussed. How did you go about sequencing the album, putting the album together in that way when you've got all these different styles going on? And as you were saying just now, you know, suddenly you ended up with like two tracks which both had a sax solo. So you're clearly thinking about these things all the time and about sequence and order and how one plays up against another. And it sounded from what you've said already that you were clearly thinking a lot about the different elements within this album and what you were trying to say as a whole. No, you didn't want to go too far one way, didn't want to go too far another way, but at the same time, you wanted to put things together so they worked together. Yeah, I mean, actually, Dynasty and Snakeskin, we always knew would bookend the whole record. It kind of was a bit yin and yangy in a way. Um, Dynasty was a good lift, and we wanted Snakeskin to feel like there wasn't an end, like it wasn't, it didn't quite finish. And yeah, so Snakeskin sort of started in this room 
with me, Johnny Latimer and Clarence. And Johnny's just incredible with chords. And we wrote Bad Friend together as well. And uh, yeah, he's just really, really great with chords. And I said, I really wanted it to be like Bohemian Rhapsody, where sort of the sections sort of led into something weird and also be based on a Beethoven song that my mom used to play all the time. But yeah, in the like all the way th- underneath that, there's some really crazy chord sequences going on. Um, yeah, as you can hear now. And who is Johnny Latimer? Where does he fit in? Yeah, so Johnny Latimer is a songwriter who's based in London. And yeah, we wrote uh, Bad Friend together. Yeah, I think we've written several other stuff. But yeah, I think the main ones are Bad Friend and Snakeskin. He was actually involved in like the first bit of this. So I think when we were in the session together, we really, really labored over this because I think when you start the track like that, you're like, where's this going to go? It doesn't sound like a conventional song. It was tough because... The, the Beethoven thing, like, we wanted to have that at the start and then it slowly kind of morph into that or out of that. And as a sort of classical piece, it's not, there's no sort of fixed tempo for that. And Oh, yeah, I remember. It was very tricky to sort of yeah, make that fit into something where a beat's going to start kicking off and eventually, it, you know, it went sort of into like trap drums and all this. And like, yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare, but somehow made it work. Yeah. I was just thinking actually, Rina, while I'm... You mentioned your mum playing it. I have got a little bit of her playing it. Oh, my mum re-recording yeah, it. Yeah, so that. after we recorded the whole thing, I was like, it'd be fun if I actually got my mum to record the Beethoven that she used to record. And it sounds really bad, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I was recording on my phone. And also she's a little out of practice. And the piano is an electric piano. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna you know, there's a lot of caveats. It's all like distorted down the phone, isn't it? And you recorded it with the intention of including it in the finished recording? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Quickly scrapped that idea. Right. Because it wasn't good enough. I think by that point, you were maybe thinking about having it as the outro, which it did end up being. Yeah. So I think my logic was, well, if it's just going to be the outro, maybe the sort of down and dirty, like lo-fi phone recording might have a bit of like character to it. It might be cool, but um, it never quite worked, unfortunately. It's a nice idea, though. And, uh, you know, a a lovely idea of linking into some of the themes of the uh, album, but also that, you know, your mother playing the piano and playing this piece um, or the Beethoven piece, you know, when you were young, you know, I think the sentiment of that is is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. And you know what? I think the sentiment is enough sometimes, mm. you know, and I think what this track really needed production wise and sonically was a grand piano in a hall, not an electric piano in my mum's house. And uh, the sentiment, I'm glad that I recorded it because I've got that memory of recording it. But uh, we actually, um, I don't even know who re-recorded it, which sounds really awful, but there are people who specialize, which I didn't know, people who specialize in uh, playing samples or replaying samples, because there was a reference that I really wanted it to sound like on YouTube because it's such an old 
you know, manuscript. It's sort of, you can use it freely as you want to, but you just need to not rip it off YouTube. You need to get someone else to re-record it. So an amazing piano player re-recorded that, um, the, the song and that's sort of what ended up being at the end. And like Karen said, yeah, that Beethoven sample was at the beginning of the song, but in making the track listing, we needed to come straight in with the vocals. So we chopped that beginning bit off and moved it to the end, which I think works better as like the last song. With the, the piano that your mum played, you did eventually get her to very subtly feature on it anyway, didn't you? Because yes. we've got, I think that's worth mentioning. So at the end, um, I went to Japan for my mum's 60th birthday and my mum and I have had a difficult relationship growing up, but we've sort of got to a place where she's happy now. She's like, you're making money from music, so I'm happy. <laughs> but anyway, so we got to talk and I interviewed her for her 60th birthday and I had prepared all these questions. The question I asked her was like, now that you're 60, how do you feel, basically? And she says in Japanese, I want to see who I want to see. Uh, I think I want to meet people who I want to meet. I want to go where I want to go and I just want to be who I want to be or something like that. Um, and I thought that that was such an amazing sentiment to close the record and she's talking in Japanese and so it's just like that song just feels full of memories it really started off in London in this room where it was a lot of uncertainty honestly I think Johnny was just not very sure with where the track was going oh there we go this is from like your whole conversation なんで私が一番超うつですっごい辛いのに何も何も助けてくれない。って思ったけどけどまあそれをこうひっくり返したら私がそれだったから自分の中からのこう強さを。So that's a really good line because yeah, so we spoke for an hour and I we've always been very honest with each other, but there was a time when I had really really severe depression and I was living in her house and she basically didn't help and I told her she didn't she knows she didn't and I think since she moved back to Japan she realizes now that she could have helped a bit more um, but she had her own thing going on as well and so I, that's the moment where I tell her that I felt like she could have done more but through music and through doing this process I've like found and therapy as well like I found a lot of strength in myself to sort of fix it like I can't fix my mum you can't change other people guys but you can change yourself and how you perceive things and so now I, I'm able to perceive that sort of moment of our lives like a bit differently but yeah so it was just a snippet of that hour-long conversation that um, I included in the end and it's sort of yeah you can hear it now <laughs> That's layered underneath the outro piano in the final version. It was always meant to be sort of quite subliminal, wasn't it? Like you have to really yeah. lean into it to sort of get it, but it's just like this echo of something deeply personal. I felt like those were really fitting because the song is about shedding and selling that part of you and music in a way. That song for me, 
by recording it and putting it online and selling it essentially sort of commercializing my own pain and my mum's pain as well so for her to close it and be like I feel like I've overcome and you know saying words to the effect of I've shed and I feel better now I feel brand new yeah made a lot of sense yeah and, and it just seems so powerful having your mum come up with a succinct uh, summary of things, you know, led by your question about her reaching 60. But it's interesting how her answer then actually linked in to what you've been thinking about in writing some of the songs, and particularly Snakeskin. Um, that probably almost fed into some of the questions you might have asked your mum in that that interview. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had a whole page prepared and we did sort of stick to it. There's a lot to discuss with my mum, you know. Like, I we've gone through a lot, but ultimately I feel... Uh, she she feels very happy with the record and I feel happy with the record. And to me, like the album was, it feels like a family album as in like my family album that I've put together full of photos, but they're songs instead. Um, because I think my whole life I've been told one narrative about my mom and then another narrative about my dad and all this confusion that I didn't know what my own narrative was. And with this record, I would feel like I understood what, my narrative was and I sort of validated it and I'm glad that I've asked her lots of personal questions about her past and my dad and her and how she dealt with things and so yeah it was super cathartic mm. and I, I hope that the whole record feels very intense and it's sort of intentionally meant to feel like that and then I hope that at the end everyone's able to take a, a breath and like a nice big sigh of relief um, as the record sort of ends and closes the topic as well as the ending on the piano as well feels very grand and final. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Snakeskin is one of those just memory packed songs. There's a couple of them, like Akasaka Sad is definitely one because I did like some field recording in a hotel for some elevator noises as well. But Snakeskin is like, it wasn't just Clarence Clarity. A producer called Salute added some like synth bass underneath uh, the drop. And we actually, I think we performed earlier versions of it. It's like sort of Matrix gamey vibe that it gives it. Because there's almost a dubstep type section, isn't there? I know, it's people a said that breakdown. after. Yeah, people said dubstep after we recorded it. And I was like, oh no. Someone said James Bond dubstep. And I was like, oh no. But. You know what? We've gone on this sort of journey of making really uncool things hopefully sound cool, including new metal. And I've yeah. got an earlier like, version where um, the sort of drop was quite extended, which might be quite interesting to hear. Oh my yeah. God, yeah. We sort of did like a Kill This Love yeah. vibe. Have you got that yeah. as well? The horns. Yeah. Like a snake skin, like a snake skin. Oh, whoops, I oh my god, you need to cut it right now. It got so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why it's got really distorted and looks like. Yeah, no, Clarence got it! <laughs> I can't, I'm dying. No, okay, so. <laughs> you think you're trying to be me? Yeah, I was like on the megaphone, like, because I was trying to, I think I was really inspired by Blackpink, um, Kill This Love, and how it was like. It was so ridiculous. It was like a little March song, but I'm obsessed with it. And 
You know what? There's lots of embarrassing moments that got cut out, and I'm so glad they got cut. <laughs> but it's all about experimenting, and then also having a team around you that's like, no, babes. You just don't <laughs> know until you cool. try, it, do you? And even then, when you do, like, you're too in it, and you've got to leave it like a couple of weeks and come back to it or something. It's yeah, it's hard. Exactly. Yeah, we were like, okay, no, let's sort of go back to more like Tyler the Creator, sort of very subby drop. Yeah. Um, Can we hear that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we stripped back the horns a bit and just made it all about the sub bass, which on the big systems when we started playing it live was like... If you're listening to this on a phone, it probably just sounds like some hi-hats or something, but like there's a whole world of bass going on. Did you put those like flary sub... Yeah, you know where that's from? Well, inspired by uh, the Terminator 2 soundtrack. There's all these like pitched down trumpets and brass stuff. Like, oh, just cool. there's nothing more evil sounding than pitched down brass. Yeah, all this stuff. Oh, it like pans as well. Yeah, you hear my sublime sound design. <laughs> yeah, I love that because it really sounds like. Oh, that's the Final Fantasy rip. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's another story altogether, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like that sub, that I mean, the tuned down brass thing is, it's just like, it, it all sort of is little sections that we added towards the end of the production, I feel like. We really went through a lot of different versions. It's so triumphant. Yeah, so that's that's inspired by Final Fantasy. I don't know if I'm allowed to officially say that it is, but it's not actually a sample for one thing, and it's, it's not, not a sample. And I wasn't clever enough to work out the exact harmonics in the Final Fantasy thing because it's like some mad, like crazy. I mean, the the actual melody, like let's be honest, it's the same. But like some of yeah. the stuff behind <laughs> it was, yeah, kind of weird, and I just like made it way more like just chromatic, boring kind of minor key stuff, probably. But it's um, just like the chords are kind of. It does travel to weird places, and that's sort of what keeps it awkward. Yeah, I think we wanted to take it to church with this one, but like yeah, a weird absolutely. church. It is interesting hearing all these different things, but also because I think there's a lot of conceptual information here. There's a lot of things that you're thinking about about how to realize some of the ideas that you've got for the song not just musically but the things you're trying to express all those things that you were talking about just now Rena, with regard to your family and it all interlinks doesn't it it's all how do we realize these in a sonic <laughs> in a sonic solution somehow which is quite well it's a very tricky thing to attempt and it's you know it's, it is it's interesting that you know you've been talking about your team but also about your collaborators, because you've got Clarence Clarity understanding these different things that are going on in your mind and being able to somehow bring them out and realise them using music. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is just Clarence's big brain, like coming up with weird sounds. I don't know how to produce. Like I 
produce in the sense that I'm part of the production session and I'm like suggesting ideas and pulling out weird references and whatever but I'd no idea like how to make the sounds actually happen and like, to make it sound I think good that works in your favor with this stuff because part of the thing I've had to learn with working on this project is how to just be so like flexible because you could throw anything at me at any time yeah um you don't have like a particular lane that you've fallen into because you produce yourself you could have any idea so when it's like oh this could sound a bit like the battle thing in Final Fantasy is like right yeah yeah okay uh let's remind ourselves what this sound like and then I'm recreating <laughs> that and, and then it's like yeah and I thought like we could start with this Beethoven piano part it's like yeah okay and then all these things and then yeah then we should have a big drop and like yeah I'm just having to it's exhausting yeah 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 but I think yeah the fact that you don't produce helps because there's no limitations to your ideas that are flying around and I guess like my skills that I've had to develop is just being ready for anything as well and not trying to force it into something that I already do is having to be like super open and flexible and by the end of it, like, because the ambition is just so huge, that, like, it's kind of hard not to have some mental song by the end of it. Yeah, and I think like it's important to have that ambition and like the bar set really high, but then also like at the end when you've got all the creative elements in, that you're able to strip out what it doesn't need and also make sure that it's still a good song at the end. I mean, it's like you know going back to those sort of experiments that we did with the the horn section and the drop being a bit bigger and stuff like that. Part of this whole process is being able to like look at something that we've worked on for two weeks or whatever, being able to just chuck it away and then start afresh, which is a huge exercise in ego as well. Cause I'm not thinking about like myself at this point. I'm just thinking about the song. I'm thinking about how cool, like how amazing the song can get. And if you're not thinking about the song, if you're thinking about yourself, then it's so easy to feel really like offended by the notion of, you know, redoing a whole instrumental like we did on Love Me For Me or just experimenting in general. And I think that's that's so important to sort of get the best out of your collaborators as well as like knowing when to back off and then knowing when to step in and knowing knowing your boundaries, but also knowing where you're willing to let go. And with production, I'm always just like super open to ideas. Like usually in production sessions, there'll be like at the beginning, I'll be more vocal about stuff, the first ideas, then it'll be pretty quiet in the room like Clarence will just be working, working, working on the production. I always try and make sure that I'm in the session just so I can hear what's going on. I can like know where you're going. So I'm not suddenly like receiving a version and then I'm like, oh no, what's this about? Like I'm sort of in it. But then in the end, like it will just be like, right, listen to it, distill it, distill it, distill it. Does that need to be there? That doesn't need to be there. And with Bad Friend, we did that a lot because they went to three different producers or two different producers. Um, and that happens quite often where a song will go to different producers and you need to be quite like savage with what you feel like works. It's all about knowing what actually adds to the final track and looking out for the song. And, you know, the production's fun and the production is really important, but like the production is like the clothes that the song wears, you know, and it just all needs to fit right and fit properly for it to enhance the song if it crowds the song and if it is making the melody not make sense and if it's getting too sort of involved in parts that it shouldn't be involved in then it needs to go i think from the artist side of things what rena's good at is just being unapologetic to like you will say what you need from something and i can imagine like especially newer artists working with producers 
there's a lot of ego flying around and I think you have to say what feels comfortable to you. And for the producers, you have to leave your ego at the door. Like I've been a big learning curve for me. Like you can be working on something for like an hour and like processing the hell out of some drums and think it sounds like the hardest thing ever. But then like an artist is going to turn around and be like, yeah, can we go back to how it was earlier? And you've just got to take that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, And ultimately you will get a better result from the collaboration. Like you've got to be careful that there's not too many cooks like ruining things by the end of it. But yeah, a lot of ego flying around. And I think, yeah, you just have to take a lot of deep breaths and sometimes it'll work out in your favor. Sometimes it won't. And like the ones we've done today, me for me, I ended up taking the reins on that and got my way with how I wanted it to sound and got lucky on that one. And then whereas yeah. <laughs> the one before on Dynasty, I thought it sounded like really good. And we sort of had the drums redone. And I was like, well, we can do it, but I don't know if it needs it or whatever. And like, you just take that one. And like, for the greater good, like when everyone's happy at the end of it, yeah, it's always for the best. Yeah, yeah I think as, a, as an artist, you also have to like, which is also hard. This is another ego thing is that you have to not care about people not liking the end result. Like the people who worked on it because yeah at the end of the day you have to go and promote it you have to then tour with it you have to live with it for several years or whatever if it becomes a hit then decades you've got to sing that song over and over it's hard because yeah if there are like egos involved it's hard to let people down and i feel really bad i feel bad saying i want to change something but it's just constantly sort of knocking that side down and yeah i think artists also needs to be really sure about what they want and also have a bit of humility when you say something and it doesn't work and then saying, oh, I'm sorry, that didn't work as well, which I've done a lot. I feel like, I was like, yeah, that doesn't work. I'm sorry, you were right. But yeah, I think that's what sort of collaboration is about. It's so much of, it's like relationship learning and building and a creative relationship is so unique. And yeah, I feel super lucky that um, me and Clarence got to work on this record so closely. And I think you can hear the consistency, hear the hard work throughout the whole record. And yeah, I am i couldn't be more proud of it, really. That's a great place to be, isn't it? Um, have we heard everything we need to hear uh, on Snakeskin? Is it worth playing the master and seeing if anything else comes up as you as you hear the master? Yeah. Because it's always um, nice hearing hearing your reactions. Yeah, totally. Let's do that. Looking for forgiveness I ran into your madness Shutting up my brain just to spy my Rina, I mean, you said you often record voice notes of melody ideas or lyrical ideas. Do you write anything down as well? I mean, do you have a notepad that you bring everywhere with your lyrical ideas? Uh, I use my notes app, right? Whether it's my MacBook or on my phone, uh, I have loads of random things. Uh, I try and write at least in my journal, and then like I'm trying this right now is that I'm trying to write some sort of prose or poetry or whatever that could be a basis of a song um, every day, even if it's for half an hour. So that's sort of my process. But for this one, I think a lot of it was written in the session and 
I can't play an instrument, so I sort of just sing things. That's something I'm trying to improve on. Um, trying to match chords to things. Even if it's just one like note on the guitar, like I think that's better than nothing, but yeah, I don't typically write on an instrument at all. I don't think with this record I wrote on an instrument yeah. once, to be honest. Um, but yeah, typically I don't really write on a notepad. I write my journal in a physical notepad, but other than that, it's all note tap or voice notes. Yeah. It's interesting to know how you you get to where you get now from where you've been before. So, Rina, you're saying that you don't play an instrument, but you clearly had an ambition to be a singer and be a performer. And similarly, I mean, Clarence Clarity, you don't suddenly become a producer. You've been an artist in your own right. You've put out albums of your own. Were you either in bands beforehand? I think I read somewhere, Rina, that you were in a band while at university, a hip hop band with Theo from Wolf Alice in the lineup. Is that right? Yeah, so random. So we went to the same sixth form, me and Theo. He was in the year below. And Theo and Jelani Blackman, who's a rapper, um, we were in a band called Lazy Lion in sixth form. And we like used to do gigs around Camden. Yeah, like little bars and stuff like that. And then I carried it on throughout university. So we performed in several May Balls which is jokes but we did that and then in that band I wrote hooks so I started writing hooks and so for my sort of job was to make something that is as catchy as possible in the shortest amount of time as possible so yeah I guess starting off like that and also yeah not having played an instrument I came from it from that angle rather than sort of singer-songwriter sitting down with a guitar which is something I wish I did because I love songs like that where it's just very chord based and sort of classical in a way um but yeah that's sort of how I started was just doing hooks yeah and Clarence I mean were you in bands then before you became a solo artist yeah I was always in sort of noisy punk bands when I first started making music I guess actually no before that I used to work on like old sort of computers doing midi sequencing and things like that but get to the age of like 16 or whatever it was a social thing to do to just make a lot of noise in a rehearsal room and that was fun and that's what I did for years but then I came back round to the working by myself on one computer in a bedroom and just like just focusing in on that and I've been doing that for quite a while now yeah then yeah it got to a point where I was like well you know I should try like expanding this and collaborating and seeing if people want to use any of this skill set that I've been quietly sort of putting together over the last 10 years or whatever and yeah went through a maybe a year or so of doing lots of different sessions with people and yeah that kind of thing like most of the time it just doesn't work out like just it's hard to get the right chemistry and be on the exact right page and doing the right sort of thing for the right point in the artist's career and all that kind of thing and it's yeah there's so many factors but yeah just lined up right with Rena and yeah 
that's how we are here today. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it's clearly a great combination. And long may it last, long may it continue. No, yeah. it's, it's really exciting. I mean, I guess now is that strange time because you should be out on the road. You should be touring. That was presumably the plan uh, after the album came out that you'd be out there performing. And w- are you going to continue performing together as well? Is Clarence going to continue in the band? No, I got kicked out of the band. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I'm relieving you of your duties. Yeah. No, it's hard being on the road and also being expected to then also again spend more more months with each other after being on the road. And it is a lot like flying and doing shows and stuff like that. Like it is pretty intense. I, think I, I was never like originally going to, it was never the set out that I was going to be involved in mm. the live show, but just the way it built yeah. up and like knowing the songs inside out, having all the, the track stuff that we wanted to use, it made sense that I got involved as a kind of DJ, quote unquote. And um, yeah, and then it built up around that and it got to a point now where I think Rena can actually do what maybe she wanted to do right from the start and have like live musicians and it'd be a, a huge <laughs> spectacle and like really exciting <laughs> in that sense. And Yes, I can get back to hiding in my bedroom now. So that's every, everyone's a winner. <laughs> um, we're going to let you go in a moment, but there are a couple more questions we like to ask people in general. One of them is regarding advice. And in a way, you've kind of already suggested some interesting advice right at the start of this conversation, Rena, when you said don't burden your creativity uh, with the responsibility of earning money. You said you heard that from someone i'm trying to remember where the source of that was from i'm a bit embarrassed to admit that that came from a book called big magic which is by elizabeth gilbert who also wrote eat pray love um so might be a little bit of a basic reference but sometimes that's the book that i get recommended by other songwriters to read because i was reaching out to people and i was like i'm feeling a bit blocked what should i read like is there any poetry books i should read i'm always asking people for advice and yeah i got recommended that book by lauren aquilina who is a songwriter and she wrote tokyo love hotel with us and yeah she recommended it and it's great and it i think that's true i mean i did like three jobs while i was doing music just and also even while i was sort of public facing being a singer on the road I was still earning money doing commercial stuff just so I can afford to record my next record and yeah I would say if you've got a day job even if you don't love it keep it until it's physically impossible to keep it anymore because your creativity and your ideas need to be protected as much as possible treat it like a child it's your inner child you need to protect it don't give it jobs I don't know I'm trying to contextualize it with myself right now like how does this apply to me and yeah, I guess like the promo and the going on tour and the sort of promotional side of me is now my day job. And then I treat the creativity and the songwriting as something separate because I recently got published. I signed a publishing deal. So in my head, I was like panicking. I was like, oh, no, this means now I'm, my my day job is being a songwriter. I need to take it seriously. I need to learn production. I need to do this. And I was putting all this pressure on myself. Also, there was like really big producers reaching out, being like, oh, I want to write with you and all this. And it was really stressing me out and something that should be really exciting because that's just that's just pure creation. It's just really cool to be able to do that on a higher level. But I was letting it stress me out because I was seeing that as it has to make me money. It has to be hits. But I think that's a really important thing to realise that that pure creative spark you just gotta protect it don't give it the burden of having to earn your living because that's unless until it gets to that point where it is purely generating income and you're fine with that but i think there's always a nucleus of creativity that you need to protect yeah very interesting and just so 
people know when you say commercial jobs, this is as a model. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, eventually it became sort of commercial contracts. Me as a singer, you know, it would sort of push my name out there as well in the commercial world. But yeah, I was sort of hopping in and out of planes all the time. And I was really lucky. I had an agent who I still do have, but she was with me at, when I was at Elite doing modeling sort of full time, I guess. And she really believed in me. And so she was, was a big reason why I was able to sustain the independent music making. But I think, yeah, it's just keep that day job, have a couple of day jobs and make sure that you wake up earlier from the day job. So you've got time to make music, just make room for it rather than try and squishing it into something that doesn't necessarily fit in yeah and what about you Clarence do you have any words of wisdom that have either been passed on to you or you would like to pass on to people uh, I think it's just obvious stuff like just from a the perspective of a producer and if you're trying to be the sort of producer that I guess I am where I am like in the start to the end of a project you have to learn how to finish things like it's such a culture amongst producers of just beat making and just having these like eight bar ideas or something and it's all well and good but like you have to learn how to finish things and not just have a graveyard of you know half finished work that's no good to anyone so that that's one thing what else I think a few years ago I just started saying yes to everything <laughs> I think that has helped a bit like I was probably more guarded in what I'd get involved in like years and years ago and was a bit more on a high horse about like associations and you just got to do everything. You just got to get stuck in and just let, <laughs> let destiny like take you on its path. And yeah, my life has been a lot more interesting since I've started doing that. So say yes to everything and just do a lot of work and don't make excuses. I think that's another thing that people fall into like, oh, I need this plugin or this guitar or I made it my, a big point to I only work on a laptop I do everything. I produce for other people with a backpack. Like I just turn up, that's me. And if like, that's not your vibe, if you want someone to turn up with some vintage synths or something, that ain't going to be me. But like, I like the idea that everything comes from my head. I'm not reliant on some magic piece of gear. And I think that kind of thing, you know, if it inspires you, great. But just remember that like, if you think you can't be creative about it, you're just making excuses and you're just stopping yourself from finishing things. Well, that ties in nicely with our, our other question that we ask people, which is about equipment. Is there a piece of kit that you <laughs> always have to use or that you bring with you or that seems like you are the piece of kit? Yeah, no, it's my 1970 Mini Moog. Um, <laughs> um, Ableton Live is kind of like <laughs> my religion. Like I'm just looking at that grey software every day of my life and it's like it drives me a bit mad sometimes just the sight of it but I think given that software can be cracked and like you can as a kid if you haven't got any money you've got no excuse just to get hold of something like you know I'm not like buy it when you can or whatever especially if you're professional you shouldn't be using cracked stuff but like there's no excuse to get started so just get stuck into Ableton get on YouTube you can have a cheap laptop it doesn't matter like the basic stuff doesn't require that much processing power anymore and uh yeah there's no limit I mean you got like a world of samples that you can grab from or you know just rob stuff off youtube doesn't matter like if you're worried about getting done for copyright just you know 
stick a load of reverb on it or something and reverse it and it's fine. <laughs> no one's ever going to know. <laughs> the amount of sneak... Yeah. There's so much sneaky stuff that I've put in stuff that no one's ever going to know. And it, it doesn't matter. It's like all part no. of the art. Like It's a free-for-all at this point. Just, yeah, just get stuck in. Yeah. And Rena, I mean, it seems interesting asking you a, an equipment question when you are the equipment. It's your brain and your vocal ability that are crucial here. Yeah, I don't have any equipment other than... I think I've had to come to peace with that because I've wanted to play instruments and at this point like people are contacting me and people want to work with me and the the end result is good despite me not having any training in I mean I can play flute up to grade three um I would say though in terms of just like making songs don't listen to stuff don't listen to like current stuff and think you want to sound like that because at the point that you write it, you produce it, you finish it, you're late. Like you're already late. It's been done. So don't look at like people who you want to be like and write songs like that because they'll be already ahead of you and you'll just sound like an imitation. When I want to write or if I want inspired by production, like we both listen to very old, very old, like 90s, 2000s stuff um, <laughs> because we know that that boundary of it being super reductive. Was it reductive? I don't know. But, you know, like obvious copy imitation. Yeah, like I've definitely resisted the urge of like being part of like a group of sort of people who are doing similar sounds in like alternative pop. And I sort of have just wanted to be a bit of a lone wolf in that sense that because I think that's very short lived for me. I don't want to sound like other people. But I'd say like what really helps me is reading books, um, watching movies and trying to empathize with someone else's story because I also don't believe that like artists need to live a tormented life because I want to live a really lovely long life and be an old grandma I don't want to die young just because I think that I need to be tortured to do this uh, you can read other people's tortured work you can hear other people's tortured songs and be inspired by that and imagine what it's like to be that person so yeah, I mean, like Clarence is saying, like use the internet, use all these free resources to your advantage and yeah, read books, don't spend time on Twitter. There's no point. Twitter is not worth it at all, nor is Instagram. Those are tools to help your business grow. That is not where your creativity lies. So yeah, I'd say listen to Spotify and YouTube <laughs> and read lots of books. Excellent. Great advice from both of you thank you very much thank you so much for taking the time out and hooking up with us and taking us into your world your creative relationship and uh, the, the wonders that are the uh, Sayawama album um, we're going to leave by playing another song from the album maybe um, which one would you like us to use as our outro music yeah so I'd like to play Bad Friend uh, which is the latest single from the album and it's a really special song to me sort of uncharacteristically bare production, I think. And it is about just purely being a bad friend and not in the sort of, not told through the lens of anything else. It's just about being a bad friend. <laughs> Rena, thank you so much. Clarence, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. Thank you. And here is Bad Friend. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. 
Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show, I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Take Notes. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. I'm so good at crashing and making sparks and shit, but then I'm a bad, I'm a bad, I'm a bad friend. So don't ask me where I've been, been avoiding everything. Cause I'm a bad, I'm a bad, I'm a bad friend. I'm a bad friend, yeah.